it's me, the sun-soaked tropical hotel looking for a companion who enjoys short walks to sandy beaches and exotic bird sightings. My only weakness? You'll never want to leave me. Download the hotels app to find me, your perfect somewhere. FX presents Under the Banner of Heaven. This case I'm working on, it's a double murder. Inspired by the true crime bestseller by John Krakauer. Oh my God. And starring Academy Award nominee Andrew Garfield. The evidence points to things and to beliefs that I have only ever heard whisperings about. FX's Under the Banner of Heaven. All new Thursdays, only on Hulu. Good in talk. <laughs> Why the German? Uh, switched up. You're in the mood. You know? I watched something with people in Germany the other day. Was it a World War II documentary? It feels like it might have been a period thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm playing Call of Duty. That's what it is. Oh. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's going on. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Honey Hole Hangout. We are the collaboration of four hunters and fly fishermen who somehow afforded podcast equipment and figured out how to release content on the internet. These are stories, opinions, and perceptions of outdoor pursuits in the sporting world. We have a great guest today, Nate. Welcome to the show. How y'all doing? We're doing good, man. Good. We're really happy to have you. This has I'm been a glad long to be time here. Coming. Yeah, man. We've talked about it for quite a while now and finally made it out here. Evan convinced me to hop in the truck and make the long trek from Austin to San Antonio. Evan's our guest chauffeur. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does a pretty good job. Yeah. We stopped yeah. by Whataburger on the way. So nice. He feeds the guest. and <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so, Nate, just give our listeners a little teaser if they don't know who you are. What do you do and what, what kind of stuff are we going to be talking about later? Uh, I'm a fly fishing guide in the Texas Hill Country, and I uh, guess we're just going to share some stories about fishing and hunting. Yeah, awesome. Sounds great. Sweet. So let's get started. Uh, I actually have a Christmas gift, uh, Christmas gifts to give everyone. Wait, we're doing that right now? Yeah, I'm going to do it right now. Ooh, let's just let's, let's do it. Let's start strong. Yeah. Uh, Cliff, would you give your headset to Evan since you have already received yours? Wait, Cliff already got his? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Uh, just, you know. You know, I wanted to see him open and see the look on his face. There's no, there's no opening. What did the look? There is just. What did the face look like? <laughs> that's, a good, <laughs> that's a good face clip. Oh man, that will work. I there you go. go. Yeah. He's got my name on it and everything. Yeah, so that is made by a guy named Dale White. He lives about a mile from my dad's place, where most of you guys have been. And uh, he is a uh, very famous knife maker. He's a very famous knife maker, and uh, I got him to make these up for us for Christmas. The the colors are the honey hole colors, the green for the bass and the yellow for the honeycomb. (laughs) The honey. The honey. And he does that. If you guys look at the lanyard, it's a rattlesnake-style and I tied those on. If you guys don't want them on, you can take them off. But it's oh, got that it. rattle, rattlesnake. I love this, dude. This is awesome. This is this turned out much better than uh, than the pictures do. It just like I was like, that looks sick. But just like having it in your hand, it's like it's a good size. Yeah. And then 
the yellow and green handle seemed to be uh, it seemed like he had a hard time figuring it out. Uh, he does a lot of natural wood handles and stuff like that. So uh, the yellow and green, what he ended up doing is using fiberglass paper, layered it, and pressed it together, and then I believe epoxied it. And then uh, whenever he actually and then shaved it down, shaved so it down, it. and that's how it got that waviness to it. That wavy look but is when you shape stipple, it down. It's almost like it's stippled. It gives you a nice grip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to skin some ducks with this. I'm going to skin some deer. This mm. looks great. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, so I hope you guys enjoy. Shout out to Dale, too. He's a really nice guy. Thank you, Dale. He, he, Thank I, you, Dale. Thank I, you, Dale. I, I have a couple other uh, – I have one other knife from Dale, but I haven't ever been out to a shop, and he only lives like a mile away from me from where I grew up. And uh, he gave me a tour of a shop, and – uh, we he just showed me a bunch of knives and talked about knife making. It was it was real cool. I asked him if he's he's retired now and he does this in his retirement. I asked him if he had an apprentice and he's like, nope, because I like my name on those knives. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want anybody else messing with his work. Um, but thank you, Dale, for making the knives for us. They turned out fantastic. And if you guys want to follow him on Instagram. White Made Knives is his Instagram handle, and you guys can go on and give him a follow. Are you okay, Cliff? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can go and follow him and see all of his work. He does custom knives, so if you guys want a custom knife build, message Dale. He did the sheaths too, right? He did do the sheaths. Uh, he did say you know, he doesn't do fancy leather work sheaths because these are working knives, and so you get working sheaths. Well, and they patina pretty well, too. So, um, next we'll move into our whiskey review. Ooh. Oh, actually, don't you have something from your dad for Christmas as well? Yeah. Okay, so before my, we do that, let's... My dad, uh, you know, he likes the the Honey Hole crew, so he wanted to give us... He, uh, he got us a, um, a case of Yingling Hershey... It's their chocolate porter that they make. Because, you know, England's there in Pennsylvania, Hershey, Pennsylvania. So Gives they, you the Hershey squirts. <laughs> I just hope not. I've been through a case of this already, and we've been in the clear. So. Uh, but, no, I mean, so they, they make their porter with actual Hershey chocolate. Um, it's only available for, like, two months out of the year and only available in, like, three states. So Oh, awesome. So is there some here that I can try? There is some in the fridge. Okay. They've already been drank. <laughs> uh, no, so yeah, so it was uh, a nice gift. And to be honest, like you don't want this all the time, but it is so good for what it is. Like, is it, it a good cold weather beer? Yes, very much yeah. so. Because like, it's like it is a porter, but it's definitely the most chocolate forward porter I've ever had. Okay, okay. Hey, Evan, will you grab me one of those? Thanks, buddy. Um, so we'll do move into our whiskey uh, we're continuing on the Japanese whiskey train. Hibiki Japanese Harmony Whiskey is what this one is. This is from Gabe. Thanks, Gabe, uh, for this one. And uh, Cliff is not a fan of the Japanese whiskey. Is he going to try this one? Are you going to try it? No, I'm not. You've got to try it. Just a little sip. It's n- That yeah. sounds good. Yeah, it's. I, I've had a sip you know, already. Honest, it's very most good. of these Japanese whiskeys have been, like, really good. But. What was the one that we were like crazy about? The unfortunately, the since they're one? a Japanese whiskey, I can't remember their names. Yeah, that was the one that that was like. This one is, uh, Centauri. This is a Centauri whiskey, which we tried another one. This the distillery is sourced from several distilleries. There's no age statement on this whiskey, and that's one of the cons that they list. 
Uh, it's a non-aged statement blend, and young, subtle components may put off some Japanese Japanese whiskey purists. So don't know how long it's been aged. It's about an $80 bottle, so on the more expensive side. And as far as the palate, you guys should be tasting a medium-bodied whiskey. It opens both sweet and nutty with a hint of almond, dried fruit, and coconut. Nougat and apricot notes appear with hints of wood, cigar, leather, and sea hitting towards the back of the mouth. Anything stand out to you guys? It's weird. It definitely has like two different flavors. Like For sure. first, it's sweet, and it's kind of like you said, like kind um, of. You get the almondy and yeah, the little I was nutty. Say nutty. Yeah, and then you get that leather. Yeah, that leather, like tobaccoy, almost like mm-hmm. kick at the end. Yeah. It might be the dip I have in, but I get the tobacco <laughs> as well. Tastes like Copenhagen. <laughs> Did you Weird. try some, Cliff? Yeah, I just poured a little bit in. What do you think? It's all right. Okay. It's better than that Super Petey one we had last week. Yeah. It's smooth, for sure. I mean, you could easily drink a bottle of that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is very good. I like it. I'm a fan. It's a good duck blind whiskey. Mm-hmm. What'd you think, Evan? Thumbs up? Would you drink more if we gave it to you? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Would it pair well with one of your little mini cigars? His black and mild wine wood tips. <laughs> 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 only, only the fancy stuff for Evan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on to... Uh, Did you say Barry Backwoods? Uh, <laughs> I like the Barry one's pretty Barry bad. Backwood. Let's move on to, uh, I have an article, Florida Man. Oh, wait, but first I want to talk about um, that movie I watched. Oh, okay, go for it. The yeah, World yeah. War II documentary? Not the World War II one. No, it's uh, called 14 Peaks. Uh, it's Nothing is Impossible. It's on Netflix, but it's just like the documentary of this guy who mountaineered and climbed the 14 tallest peaks in the world, all of them over 8,000 meters, and he did it in like six months. And the previous record was seven years. That is just unbelievable to yeah. me. That that w- record will stand forever. Oh, yeah. And I haven't seen the documentary, but what I know about mountaineering, that record will stand forever. The amount of luck you have to have even to have a summit push on probably half those mountains is ridiculous. Because I know guys, I, I know Annapurna is a pretty famous one for being – you know, you get up to a certain ridge and you camp out and a storm rolls in, you're in your tent for four days and you miss your opportunity for a summit and you have to climb back down. And people have, you know, had multiple attempts on Annapurna just to climb all of them yeah. over multiple years. And he was able to hit every single one of those peaks. Six months. He, I think he did so much research to plan out his trip. Uh, but the guy's name is Nims Perja. He is a, uh, a per, uh, man from Nepal. But... I definitely recommend the documentary. Oh, and you guys remember that that Everest picture that went viral about a year ago where literally it was like like uh, stop-and-go traffic to the summit? Yep. He was the one who took that picture. Oh, on really? On that six-month journey, yeah. He, he summited, and on his way back, he turned around, and he snapped the picture because of how ridiculous the – Literally line of oh, people. Oh, yeah, the people was. waiting just to get to the top. Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. like. It looked like a Black Friday sale. <laughs> it really does. It's crazy the amount of people trying to summit uh, uh, Everest. That's probably worth more than buying a $600 TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it costs, what, like 30 grand to summit it? Yeah, now? I think. And you can grand. die in either situation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Tickle me elbow, you're going to lose a tooth. And did he do no oxygen? No, he did oxygen. He did and, oxygen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he did o- over 8,000 uh, meters. Over, yeah. How many cliff bars did he end up eating? 
36. Asking the important questions, Cliff. They have a little tally at the bottom. I wonder what that did to his body, though. I'm sure he's You put shit. your body through a toll doing that. As far as like know. eating, and once you get to a certain elevation, your body doesn't digest food, starts breaking down the muscle. And I'm very curious what his body went through. It's it, the doc. I don't want to give too much away in case people watch it, but they he did like he went to London to do like this whole like body study. His body works differently than other people's in uh, low oxygen environments. So like he's able to work past like that head fog that most people get under like a third of the oxygen we actually use and um he was able to like power through and push through with no problem like brain and motor function so it was really cool interesting i'm gonna check it out for sure that's a good one zach yeah i enjoyed it all right let's uh talk about florida man florida man no fooling all right it's kind of like hold my beer all right you know what i'm saying it's just florida man that's all it is all right, we have a positive, encouraging Florida man today. My dad sent this to me. Florida man takes kids without father figures on fishing excursions. Oh, man. Uh, this was uh, by Daniela Genovese from, and I found this article on Fox News. What's the group's name? Take a Kid Fishing, Inc. It's a nonprofit. That's cool. Because I think they really missed the ship on Florida without fathers. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh 11 years ago william big will dunn set out on a mission to help a young child growing up without a father figure he turned to the one thing that brought him peace as a kid fishing since then dunn has dedicated his life to helping foster children and those who are growing up without a father figure by taking them on fishing excursions in clearwater florida through his nonprofit. Take a Kid Fishing, Inc., or as Cliff said, should properly be renamed Florida Without Fathers. Yes. <laughs> Dunn has worked with thousands of, tri- thousands of children as part of the fishing program, pro- program, but it all started with one very important child, Cameron, who was eight years old at the time. He said, I saw this young boy that was frustrated and showed anger. I didn't know why until I found out his father was not in his life. It was the very thing that relaxed all my anxiety that I had built up through the day, he said. Suddenly, Dunn started to see a positive change in him. He started doing better in school, showing more respect to his mom, and just becoming more of a man of the household because his dad was not in his life. After seeing the changes in Cameron's life, Dunn said it became his lifeline, life calling to help other kids that are fatherless. He began reaching out to foster homes and started taking groups of 20 to 25 kids on a fishing charter out of Clearwater, Florida every Saturday. He did so out of his own pocket. He said, we take them out, show them a good day and spend time with them and everything. He said, just go, uh, just to get out of the boat, you see a difference in them. These excursions, according to Dunn's website, teach children life skills and responsibility inside and outside the classroom, such as learning patience, teamwork, teamwork, and how to relax and avoid making harsh and rash decisions. Fishing also teaches them how to support each other, whether they win or lose. That's all I got. I think that's awesome. That's a great... I mean, it's right up I think we should uh, tip a glass to... Uh, Florida to without Florida man. To, to Florida, Florida man. man. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> it's nice to uh, get a Florida man... They're not right. uh, a positive Florida man. Yeah, a positive you, Florida it's man. It's very rare that you get a positive Florida man. It's yeah. not, yeah, they're usually running from dragons or snakes or something. <laughs> Throwing alligators through windows. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I got on Florida man. I don't think there's much to say other than what the article said. No, that's uh, good. I like it. 
props to this dude taking these kids out on his own expense and showing them a good time and positively affecting their life. So I'm, I know that those kids will remember those fishing trips for the rest of their life. Oh, yeah. Cliff, what do you got for us? Close Cool Conservation Corner. Ooh, I get to push the fun button. It actually kind of feeds into a couple or something else that I wanted to discuss, a video that I saw as well. But Washington State lost its spring bear hunt to political overreach. It's the title of this opinion piece article from Outdoor Life. So Washington State lost the ability to hunt bears. In the spring, okay. which has traditionally since 1999 been a uh, permit-only hunt anyway. Okay, so it's not like everybody's going out and doing this. Correct, okay. but they still cut it. So the... My question, My question is, what does the research say? Not good. Uh, government Jay Inslee. Governor? Yes, the governor, uh, Jay Inslee, I-N-S-L-E-E, passed into or used executive orders to uh, cut out spring bear hunting in Washington State. Uh, in the past, the way they, they've done it, because, you know, the eastern side of the state is vastly different than the western side of the state in uh how it's broke up. So their wildlife commission had three people on the board from the eastern part, three people from the western part, and then an overarching government's body in the like main three seats. Uh, what has happened is Inslee has placed only people from the western side of the state into these main seats. So the are west- those seats uh, governor appointed seats? Is what it sounds like. Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, from what I understood on this article, uh, they equated it to cougar and bear hunting stuff, but uh, said due to a lot of like anti-hunting groups and stuff is why this ended up kind of coming to head uh, for it. All that they've done now is they've took away permits because anti-hunting yogi, uh, granola, crunchy people don't like it. And so now Washington State has lost its spring bear hunting rights. And where this comes into something else I want to talk about is earlier this week I saw a video. It was two guys hunting, and I sent the video into the group chat for y'all to watch too. I don't know if y'all did. I know Evan did. Or was that just me, you, and E? So it was another group chat. I was going to say, I only get the dirty videos. So. Yeah, that, that <laughs> I cut that out. Um, but it was two dudes, I'm assuming two dudes, duck hunting, and a lady came up, and she was trying to feed the decoys. And they said, hey, can you not do that? Wait, she was trying to feed the decoys? She was trying to feed the decoys. Okay. She came out with her like little stale loaf of bread uh-huh. and everything. Which not, hey, uh, you know, PSA, you're not supposed to feed ducks bread anymore. I didn't hear that. They can't digest it. Yeah, it's not good. They actually die. It just kills them. <laughs> but anyway, she comes out there with her l- bag of sandwich loaf of bread. Uh-huh. And she's throwing it out there to the decoys, and the hunters go, hey, can you not do that? They're not real ducks anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, and technically, you're baiting in a hunting area, um, which would then kind of negate it being a hunting area because you're not supposed to hunt over bait wherever they were. 
And so she said, she's like, well, why don't y'all just go to Wigman's with the rest, the chain of like a Piggly Wiggly? Yeah, kind of. Uh, food grocery store is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got that. <laughs> it's kind of the grocery store, I guess. And they were like, well, it's too expensive and or I could just do this. And then she just straight up called them murderers and all this other stuff for hunting ducks you tell you legally. Feeding ducks poison. Well, I don't know if they knew that. I don't know when this video was done. And I didn't know that till now. Um <laughs> <laughs> but it really kind of brings a point like we always come across like anti-hunting organizations or anti-hunters and stuff sitting there saying like we're murderers we're this we're that we're this or that but then they also point out like oh why don't you just go to the grocery store and get the meat well it's the same thing just we're more connected to that meat process and getting it and eating it ourselves I don't even know if it's the same thing. Have you been, like, have you seen some of those cattle farms and stuff? It's, I don't know. Well, I, you're, you're I, even well, cleaner you're, you're, meat. You're, you know. you're proving even more so a point is right. that it not being part of a factory farm right. gives these animals a more natural life and more natural lifestyle versus being held up in a, a pen shoulder to shoulder with its mate and whatnot for a prolonged period of time. So, well, and I'm just going to point out something. I have more respect for vegans than I do that people that don't like hunters but are willing to go buy meat at the grocery store and from factory farms and all that. Because at least the vegans, they're standing behind what they believe and they're not eating meat, period. Someone that is giving hunters a hard time about going out and hunting and shooting ducks and then recommending that they go to the grocery store to buy them there's like a huge disconnect between right. that person. Like that argument doesn't it's even... It's a weird argument. It doesn't even make mind. sense because they're doing what's more natural, what's more clean, you know. And all those ducks are gluten-free, non-GMO, non-hormones, all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, they're taking part in the process of collecting their game and eating it and cooking it. As a whole, is a much more wholesome experience than just, oh, just go to the grocery store and buy it. I mean, I agree. You're yeah, but you don't have to get your hands dirty if you go to the grocery store. Yeah. Which is kind of my point. I'm almost to the point of where it's like, I almost wish that grocery stores would just stop selling meat and you either had to A, go to a butcher so you see the process a little bit more, or B, go to a farm where you see the process a little bit more. That ain't ever happening. I know it's not. It's <laughs> a little, little thing called the Industrial Revolution. Kicked I, in. I understand, like that's an idealistic like mindset in that scenario, but we've become so detached from where our food comes from. We think it's just on the shelf. It's not something that was ha- that had to have either been grown or and processed over or labored over or something that hasn't been cultivated and labored over and all this other stuff we've become so detached from where it is and i'm not saying that that's a bad thing we've been able to pull people out of starvation because of the of how we do stuff now but at the same time we've become so detached that you're hindering other people's rights to collect their food source in the way that they enjoy or see fit for them and their family 
Well, and she was probably, most states have uh, hunter protection laws where if you're, you know, harassing a hunter or angler that is legally, you know, using their rights yeah, to Yeah, but how many, people, how many people will call and follow up on that? I mean, oh, hardly anybody I, gets prosecuted, I'm sure. Uh, but honestly, though, if I was being harassed, I would have no problem calling the game wardens to let them, you know, or somebody to... Let me know. Plus but then that brings us back into like the Washington situation of where it was governmentally done of these organizations getting into the politics of stuff and now they've ruined a perfectly viable conservation tool for spring bear hunting or spring or bears in general. Can they hunt in the fall? I'm, I'm, I mean, it, 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 it specifically said spring bear, so I'm assuming like fall bear hunts are still okay. Yeah. But most people who hunt bear hunt in the spring because that's after they've uh, hibernated, hibernated, had their cubs and everything like that. When you hunt in the fall for a bear, there's a good chance you're shooting a pregnant sow. Really? More than likely. I never, I never looked at it. Where, whereas in the spring, they've already cub, or had their cubs and everything. So it's already brought forth the next generation. Yeah. So... I think spring bear hunting has always kind of been more of the way to go, and I it think that's sounds the like one. I'd like to look into this a little bit more and see what the research is. Are bears overpopulated? You know, uh, also... Well, they do have an issue with bears, and if you look to, like, other states that have done stuff like this, like New Jersey back, uh, I think it was a year or two ago, they did... They canceled their bear hunts and stuff, and then within less than... I'm confused as to what's going on. Flying There's over a fly. Head. Got a There's a mosquito or, or something. <laughs> it was like you were moving around and getting me all confused. <laughs> but it, it happened a couple of years ago in uh, New Jersey, I believe it was, where they stopped bear hunting and predator hunting. And bears were actually coming into major metropolitan areas and causing havoc and stuff in residential neighborhoods. And I don't know whatever came from that because I ended up fo- stopped following the story there. But it's been there. The biologist and stuff still says it's sustainable to hunt spring bear. So they're there. Well, usually wildlife agencies do a good job of only allowing the amount of tags that... Right, you know, and it was all permit hunting anyway, so it means you had to have had a tag. No, I gotcha. I'll be curious to follow it a little bit more. Executive action seems like a stretch to well, it just goes cancel in, a It just goes season. into the overarching government overreach of states and federal mm-hmm. government anyway. If they wanted to do it, they should have done it through the state wildlife agency, similarly yeah. to how Texas Parks and Wildlife, for example, would have limited the season right. for um, the trout. Or, yeah, or the, they did that yeah, for, for trout, for the trout freeze, and for the flounder. flounder. Yeah. yeah. But Texas Parks and Wildlife went through the correct procedural, you know. Yeah, instead of basing to, it off of uh, emotion, they went through true scientific avenues. Yeah. Is the flounder um, thing still happening right now? I think it's mid December. So by the time it, this podcast comes out, it might be. So yes, yeah, I think it's yeah. December fourteenth. Check, check your regs, people. Check your regs. <laughs> All right, I got one more story. Uh, Zach, no sound clip. This one's actually kind of a sad one, but I wanted to talk about it. Oh, man. Uh, I got to follow up with a giant man-eating cat. Uh, this came out, this happened a couple days ago, but a hunter in Texas accidentally killed his 11-year-old daughter. Did you guys see this? 
No. Yeah. Harrison County Sheriff's Office in Marshall, Texas, said it received multiple reports shortly after 5 p.m. Saturday of a hunting accident just east of Hallsville, Texas. Um, the calls reported that he sh- accidentally shot his daughter. Father accidentally shot his uh, daughter with a high-powered rifle. They called 911. They were trying to get her uh, helicoptered out, but there was too much fog, and they couldn't land a copter. So they had to... They had to uh, ambulance her to the hospital, which was like 12 miles away. So it took a while for the ambulance to get out and then back to the hospital. Um, what happened was he had thought he cleared the gun, but unfortunately hadn't. And, um, you know, he went to release his hammer and the gun discharged. And so what, you know, the article doesn't say a lot, but what I was looking into uh, other comments on the article was that, you know, he had unloaded his rifle thought he had cleared all of the rounds and then you know kind of like a situation where you know you open both the doors of the back seat of the truck and he is like loading his gun into the truck his daughter's hopping in the back seat oh. and that is when the rifle discharged where did the, where did this happen this happened in um Hallsville Texas okay so East Texas, Texas though East Texas. And I don't like reporting on these stories, but I think it's an important reminder, too. Like, gun safety is very, very, very important. Sounds like this was truly an accident, um, but still, gun safety, gun safety, gun safety, gun safety. Always be aware of the direction your barrel is facing. And again, like, obviously, you don't want to make light of the situation at all, but I think it's just even more important to talk about. I mean... You gotta always look and see where that where it's pointed, where it's headed. Yeah, when you unload it, check it again, double check it, triple check, triple it. check it, yeah. put the safety on, release the hammer before you get into the truck. I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this. I mean, you can't help feel but like terrible for the situation. Yeah. But uh, I just wanted to talk about the story because. It's just important to remember we nobody wants these things to happen. So just gun safety, gun safety, gun safety. And I think we were talking with Nate before the podcast and just people when they go hunting or they're a new hunter or they're inexperienced with guns, they just even if you talk them through it, gun safety before, it just doesn't You just get too excited. Well that's yeah, that's I mean, you know you have I even anything. have to remind myself every time I go out and there's an animal in the way, like you said, even fly with fly fishing. You forget the basics the second you see a large fish in front. Like, you yeah. know, it's... You just get excited. Goes. Yeah. And it's it's hard to, you know, hold it all together sometimes when you're new to it. And it's, it's almost like muscle memory. You know, you haven't... If you haven't been through the actions... And I'm not saying this guy... This guy's probably hunted his whole life. You right. know, who knows? It, it was an accident. Accidents happen no matter what. Yeah. You know, you, even to the most trained people, you know, the most prepared. But... So, guys, just be safe out there. Have gun safety. It, it can happen, and so just be aware and be safe. All right, Zach, Creature Watch. All right, guys. So if, if you remember, last week I brought you the story of Grilla and Lepaludi, the two Norse, like, weird creatures uh, around, like, the, you know, the holiday season. Okay, right? yeah. So I am now going to talk to you about their cat and their children. Okay. So and do a quick refresher on the two. Was it the one where they like 
lure bad kids out. Yep, they would eat disobedient children. Uh, she lived in a cottage uh, or a faraway cave. She would come down during the season and kind of like we're like the instead of a lump of coal sort of thing where we have with Santa, it was very much like, hey, if you're bad this year, uh, Grilla is going to snatch you up, take you back to her cage, and eat you. So this is something that parents use to like keep their children in line? Exactly. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, and her third husband was Lepaludi, who they have. A cute little cat named the Yule Cat. I'd also like to point out that this Hershey's Yenling like really tastes like chocolate. It's crazy, right? This is the only chocolate porter I've ever had that like, oh wow. It's like this it's is Hershey chocolate. chocolate. This yeah. is chocolate. Right. Nate, you gotta get one. You do too. They're from Pennsylvania, right? Go try it. It's good. It is good stuff. Like it just for the experience of having one, it's crazy. So the Yule Cat is Grilla and Lepaludi's pet. Uh, it is a giant and vicious cat who is described as lurking about the snowy countryside during the Christmas time. And it eats people who do not receive any new clothes during the Christmas season. <laughs> so, better hope grandma loves you. <laughs> better get you know, some socks for Christmas. We all make fun of the socks and ties, but it's not But stops if you're a kid who believes in that and you get a pair of socks for Christmas, man, <laughs> did safe. your Christmas just get you a lot always, better? <laughs> I didn't think of why this would even be a thing. But that might be yeah. it. So the kids are like actually That way you can't complain about that yeah. you got socks and long underwear yeah. for Christmas. At least the Yule Cat will not, will eat, not you. eat you. <laughs> Can you imagine how 400 years ago it was terrifying? Whatever old, you know, this is a thousand years old, yeah. you know, but oh man, Christmas was terrifying. The months leading up to Christmas, like, hey, if you guys were bad, you're going to get eaten the night before you open all <laughs> these <laughs> presents. <laughs> Take these socks back. <laughs> Uh, when do you guys think the Yule Cat kind of joined uh, Grilla? If you remember, Grilla kind of came around uh, the 17th century. Okay, so obviously after the 17th century. So the cat was an addition after mm-hmm. okay. 18th century. Okay, what do you think? <laughs> 19th century. <laughs> what do you think? I'm going to go the late 17th century. Okay, it was 18th <laughs> century. And for those of you guys who don't know, Evan has now joined us on the podcast. Yeah, we got we, really we booted Cliff. We so booted it took him 100 years to bring to the cat to into the, the story. Okay. They, well, like, they, they realized people were complaining yeah, about the socks. It took about 100 years, <laughs> like, look, and the kids punk. realized that they weren't going to get eaten right. by yeah. the lady in the cave. Mm-hmm. So then they were like, well, she has a cat as yeah. well. <laughs> they, were good the cat? they were good all year long and then bitch about socks on, yep. on Christmas. Yep. Yeah. So... Uh, ancient tradition uh, has uh, the Yule cat has only been located as recently as the 19th century. Oh, I lied. It was the 19th century. You're Dang right. Dang it. Brandon <laughs> wins again. <laughs> I need to get a tally board. We do get yeah. a tally because board. I think I. Yeah, you're, you're winning. Uh, farmers were known to use the Yule cat as a like lure to get their. Um, their work is to finish processing the autumn wool before Christmas. Being like, hey, we got to save all those people from the Yule Cat, so please. <laughs> oh, it's, please. A, it's a double-edged sword, man. <laughs> get your workers to work and get your kids to be excited <laughs> about clothes. That Yule Cat is not OSHA approved. <laughs> 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 definitely not. Um, over time, though, people thought that the cat actually eating you was a little bit harsh. So now... It but but the whole the lady eating you was not harsh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. or her husband, her or third her, husband. Right. Third she ate her first she two. Ate the other two. <laughs> they didn't get socks for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Fed them to the cat. So uh, now the Yule cat will just eat your food uh, instead of you. 
So, if so you instead of just dying from the cat, you starve to death. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still just uh, based on if you don't get any clothes for Christmas. Mm. Uh, so, what it sounds like is a marketing scam by the wool producer. No, to get, so he get buy clothes. There it to is. Get parents exactly. to buy clothes yep. and get his workers to work. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and so finally, I'll also end off with the Yule lads. Uh, the Yule lads are the sons of Grilla and Lepaludi. There are thirteen mischievous pranksters who steal or harass everybody um, in this area. Right. So, you guys know what Yule time is. Give us a refresher. It's the 13 days that lead up to Christmas, right? The Yule, okay. like, you know, like the Yule log and all that stuff. Yeah. It's it's all about the days leading up to Christmas. So the Yule lads will arrive at your house one by one for the 13 nights leading up to Christmas. If the children are good, they will leave great uh, gifts in their shoes. However, if they're bad, they leave a potato. potato. So it's a win-win. <clears throat> so you, get, you get food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the Yule cat will just steal Well, it. the cat's going to yeah. eat the <laughs> yeah. um, In modern times, the Yule lads also have more of a benevolent role. Uh, kind of similar to, like, Santa Claus. Uh, they are generally portrayed wearing, uh, like, Icelandic clothing, but also uh, can be, like, can wear, like, more traditional Santa Claus stuff as well. Um, let's see, is there anything other good stuff? There are 13 of them, like I said. They all have something fancy. Uh, what I don't know what these words are in, in Icelandic, but I'm going to try anyways. Uh, Bjol Nutcracker. What do you think he does? <laughs> I heard Bjol Nutcracker. <laughs> <laughs> that tells me right there what he does. He is the sausage sweeper. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. yeah, he is. <laughs> he, hangs, he hangs in the smoker barns and steals the sausages being smoked. That's going to be Cliff's nickname when he fails out of game warden school. <laughs> the sausage sweeper. Sausage swiper. And then the last one is the Ask a Slicker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Let me tell you what I heard, boys. Ass liquor. So the nutcracker and the ass liquor. This is some kinky shit. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, we got to get off these Yule lads, man. I'm telling you. It's, it's so, cold and dark out there for yes, a while. Last thing, the, the ask us liquor yeah, see? Is, is a the bowl liquor. Uh, he would come around. That's right, yeah. Just the back. You know what? Never mind. <laughs> he would come around under beds and waiting for people to finish their meals and then come around and lick their bowl. <laughs> so that was it. There's 11 more if you're interested. The Yule lads. But that was fantastic. That was, fun. That was a fun ride. <laughs> All right. This summer, your next adventure is waiting for you in Colorado. Here, dreams feel bigger, and everything shines just a little brighter, no matter where you are. Whether you're relaxing in a quiet mountain town or exploring a vibrant city, new discoveries are waiting for you around every corner. Come to Colorado. Come to life. Learn more at colorado.com summer. This episode is brought to you by the NHL on TNT. When it comes to hockey, the Stanley Cup playoffs are built different. Experience the intensity and insanity on the ice and off it. From now through June on TNT and TBS. Get ready for seven game rounds of knockdowns, dragouts, pressure, and agony as teams go head to head without ever letting up. The Stanley Cup playoffs are known for more than just a few cracked ribs and black eyes. 
Pushing through the pain is the name of the game. With so much edge of your seat action, you'll refuse to shave or change your jersey. Don't say we didn't warn you. Ready to feel the rush? Watch the Stanley Cup playoffs now on TNT and CBS. Let's get into our interview with Nate. Nate, let's start off with our questions. Get the ball rolling. All right. (laughs) Nate, is scrimping easy or not? Well, it depends. Um, Sometimes scrimping is easy and sometimes (laughs) it isn't. Is there an actual definition of the word scrimping? Or is it just more of a feeling? It's more of a way of life. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You know, it's more of a... You know, scrimping could be just any time you're down at the coast back in the marsh grass, you know, you're scrimping because you're trying to feed that scrimp to a redfish. Mm. <laughs> I like it. We got another question. How did you lose your teeth? Uh, <laughs> I lost my teeth uh, in baseball in high school. I ate a pitch to the mouth and oh. ate about six of my teeth. Oh, oh man. Six? Yeah. Yeah. Which teeth? Oh. Whoa, okay, yeah. I was not expecting that. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if they're implants or what. Well, everyone asks, I'll never get implants. Uh, I've had them, I mean, I'm 39 years old, and it happened when I was 14. So So I've had dentures for 25 years. Uh, The the implant deal is multiple surgeries and tens of thousands of dollars, and the the dentures cost 500 bucks. Yeah. It's about pair number eight. So, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's not too but, bad. But, you know, for 25 years, I've only had eight different sets. So, so yeah, you know, that's not yeah. that bad. Still cheaper than implants. Yeah. And no one knows. <laughs> yeah. If I don't yeah. pull them out, nobody else I would have never. How long have I known you? And yeah. I never knew. <laughs> uh, that was from. You haven't uh, been you're... drunk around me enough to. That's usually the, <laughs> the drunk party trick. They pull it out. Like, <laughs> my grandpa used to do that and scare me when I was a kid. It's usually a pretty quick way to get out of a bar fight, too. If you kind of get in an argument with someone and you pull your teeth out and put them in your pocket <laughs> and then say, are you ready to go? <laughs> like, oh, man, they, they realize either quick you're really good at getting your ass kicked because you got your teeth knocked out, but you're still willing to fight or that you don't have as much to lose as them. And so then, <laughs> therefore, they're probably in a bad situation. It's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> You're good buddy Fowler sent in that question. I figured. I was like, which one sent that? Uh, Chase, uh, who I think his podcast episode came out today. Yeah, okay. Fish, uh, Chase Smith. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He asked, what's your favorite fly to fish with, and why is it a game changer? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. I mean. Is the game changer your favorite fly to fish with? Um, not for clients? I mean, no, I've, I've, I like. <laughs> not for Ev- me. Evan lost about nine of them on a trip one time. Um, it's definitely in the top three. I love that that fly. I've caught so many different species of it. I mean, Blaine Chocolate knocked it out of the park with that fly. It's yeah. it's hard to beat. You know, everything, you know, predatory-wise loves a bait fish. I mean, we've caught redfish, speckled trout, dorado, uh, small tuna. All I've caught four different species of jacks on them, um, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, stripers. I mean, white bass, trout. Yeah, freshwater and saltwater. Now, don't you have a state record on a game changer? I, yeah, I, the it's the the catch and release largemouth bass state record and the Town Lake official fly rod record for 
Town Lake and well, Lady Bird Lake in Austin. Wait, okay, no way. okay, so yeah. say, okay, say that one more time because that was two different things that went over my head. Right. Okay, so it's the catch and release fly rod state record. record. Okay, the the fish wouldn't have beat the the fly rod record is fifteen point four pounds, okay. which is going to be nearly impossible to break. But no, this was it's the catch and release fly rod record for the state, and then it's the fly rod record just in general for. Town Lake or Lady Bird Lake. Okay, so you have the water body record. record. Yeah, there you go, water yep. body record. And uh, and uh, the catch and release and I, state record, which they do the catch and releases by length. Right, As yeah. opposed to right. by weight. Right. Okay, yeah. so you have the whole state. Is catch and release any body, fly rod. Any body yeah. of water, the largest largemouth bass. Yeah, 24 and a half inches, and it was 10.4 pounds. On a fly. Yeah. But they do that different than the actual state records. The state records are by weight. And length and weight, yeah. Length and weight. Yeah. So yours the catch, catch and release, release is length only because right, they can't get they're a just going weight. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. you probably want to release that fish anyway, as opposed right. to right. And what I mean, that day was just a phenomenal day. I mean, we had probably eight or nine fish over five pounds, several over six, and then that fish topped it off. And Ladybird Lake, like okay, the uh, right not, the middle not, of downtown Austin. Okay, so not LBJ. No, no, no. Because that's Marble Falls. Right. Lady Bird Lake. No, I'm talking about like when you're driving over Congress in Austin, that lake right there that right goes there. through the middle of down. It's okay. just it's it's the Colorado River. Right. That's all it is. They right. dammed off, you know, it's just like Lake Austin is the Colorado River. You know, it's just you know, and it's it's more of a river than a lake. Right. You know, it's it's narrow and long. Um yeah, Town Lake, Ladybird Lake, Still whatever the, you want to call it. Oh that's I mean awesome. I that probably is, spent when I saw what the old record was, I knew that I'd caught bass bigger than that. And then like, I spent, what was the old record? It was like, I beat it by like an inch and a half. It wasn't crazy. You know, it was like a 23-inch bass. That's okay. still, still that's, yeah, that's, it's a decent fish. You know, eight-pound fish. You know, yeah. anywhere from six to eight pounds, really, so, you know, at that length. What's the process for a catch and release record? How do you have to submit it? And what do you have to make sure that you do? Because I have other friends who have been docked Oh, yeah. Inches. No, they'll, they're, so. Because they don't. They're the very right particular. Way. Um, you have to have what they consider a certified board. Um, you can a check it stick is one of them. A hog trough, as long as the marks are marked in in black. And that's one of the ones with like the actual like nose guard. Yeah, and then, exactly. Like, uh... And you you need a nose guard because they will dock you inches. There's several things. One, um, they will dock you inches if the bottom jaw is not touching the very end of the board, and that's why that having nose, that little that plate is job. right. The other thing they will dock you inches if the mouth of the fish is open. And that's how most people end up losing their record because the mouth is, open. is because in most tournaments you can score a fish by length with the mouth open because you gain about a half an inch. Oh, I would have thought it would have gone the other way that their mouth actually No, because a, think of it like a largemouth bass. His bottom jaw is about an is inch and a half longer than his top jaw. Yeah. And so when that jaw comes down, He's you have that. Yet. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, we just made sure it was all the way. And then you have to have a witness. You can't go out by yourself and catch a catcher and release record. Record because someone has to have witnessed you taking the photos and Do they have to be in the photos as well. No, he did, they just make them sign an affidavit. Okay, saying so that like they I was there, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I witnessed this. Yeah. Fish. Okay. And funniest part was we were on a. I was actually on a guide trip and we had been catching a lot of good fish, like I was saying. And one of the guys was like, "Hey man, why don't you fish?" And I was like, "No man, you know y'all y'all are having a good day." And he's like, "No, no, you fish." And I was like, "All right." And <laughs> Third cast into it, you know. I'm <laughs> you pulling in that ten pound largemouth on the fly rod. Well, it sounds like they had a good day if you caught multiple fish over five pounds. Oh, it anyway. was a, yeah, it was a phenomenal. Yeah. And we, yeah. I mean, we broke off. I you know we I I don't know if we didn't see a lot of the. I mean, we broke off several fish that day, and it could have been stripers or hybrids or catfish. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were where what we where we were fishing at. 
and the conditions were just phenomenal. Yeah. It was, I mean. One of those days. Yeah, where you just hit, it, you're in the honey hole. Yeah. I mean, there was no other spot to be. The guys that were fishing 50 yards to our right weren't catching anything. The guys that were fishing 30, 40 yards to our left weren't really catching anything. We were just sitting in that spot where the current was right and the fish right. were all lined up. And That's great. Yeah, it was awesome. That's awesome. And I'll know someone told me that someone beat it, but I and I haven't looked and seen if I still have it. But they send you a certificate though that yeah, you can uh-huh. get framed and all right. that. Yeah, yeah, I've got all that, and I've still got all the photos and measurements and stuff. I plan on getting the mount done of the fish just because I don't know if I'll ever catch another double digit bass on the fly rod. Yeah, and I mean I spent probably two years just bass fishing on days off to try and do this. And so then you're it happened. trying to, like, you're yeah, going for this. Yeah, I got it in my, well, because we had, I mean, I, I I, don't just fly fish. I'll throw, you know, conventional gear as well. And I, when I moved to Austin, like, shoot, 12, 13 years ago now, um, our buddy Chris Fowler, we'd, I'd, you know, hadn't seen him in a while. We started fishing again together, and we got real big into throwing, like, big swim baits and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've pulled nine double-digit bass out of that lake. Right. And so I knew they were in there. And then I was just next level. I just wanted to step it up and do it on the fly rod instead right. of catching them on, you know. Unconventional, just yeah. big, fat. Right, and that was on a big seven-inch all-white game changer yeah. is what I caught that bass on. Why do you think it's so much harder to catch on the fly than on conventional? And I think we know why. I'm just more asking right. the question. Right, no, um, it's... <laughs> Because especially with big bass, um, a lot of it's blind casting, and just not a lot of people want to go out there and make 400 casts in a day to catch, especially possibly with, catch one fish. Especially with a 7-inch game changer throwing on a wet sock. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and with new materials, they're not as bad. I mean, you can throw a big game changer now on a 6- or 7-weight rod. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's like, I, mean, I don't want to compare it to musky fishing because, I've, one, I've never done it, but it's also probably way more difficult but if you're specifically going to tar- target a double-digit fish, I mean, you're going to spend, you know, countless hours trying yeah. to make it happen. Now, on that, <clears throat> I've never really fished at Lake outside just like a, a little bit of stuff whenever, whenever I'm downtown. Um, you using intermediate line, full sink, floating? It, usually fishing lakes, I'm fishing an intermediate or a full sink. Okay. Yeah, I, f- I fish a lot of full sink line. Really? Um, yeah, you know... Certain times of the year, I, I love throwing big hair bugs and top water and stuff for bass, but there's something about throwing a fast sinking line Just with a big low. fly on it. Yeah. And yeah. Because you can really, I mean, once you get it down, you know, and you, it's a process. You lose a lot of flies in the, you know, times. And I mean, you know, at some points, you know, there's times where, you know, I only had a couple game changers and we'd snag stuff up and we're swimming down to get flies back and yeah. stuff like that, you know, yeah. snagged on a log. 15 feet of water and you're following your fly line down to find it and unhook to get it, it out. and get it back and stuff like that. Yeah, game change is probably one of the only flies I'd, I'd dive down to that for. <laughs> you know, $12, $20 a piece depending <laughs> on who you buy them from. Yeah, so. yeah. Or a Ryan Gold hair bug. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Um, What is your uh, worst experience guiding? Man, in all honesty, I get, I we have clients ask this all the time. Man, we hardly... I hardly ever have like terrible um, experiences. You know, I've had a few clients that were rude, but they're usually not rude towards me. They're usually rude towards like the friend they brought with them in the boat or the husband and wife get into an <laughs> argument. That's always very awkward when you're two miles into a five mile float and all of a sudden you're in like a domestic dispute. <laughs> <on> the- <laughs> and there's, you know, you're the five feet in between the two clients. Like, um, but I've never had like horrible, horrible experiences. Um, you know, I've had 
doing some quail hunting stuff, I've had, you know, that'd be worse to me than, but like, you know, people swinging guns past your head or almost shooting dogs and stuff like that. That's a pretty horrible experience. Um, And kind of terrifying at the same time. And that goes back to our story earlier about gun safety, gun safety, gun safety. Yes. That is more important than shooting over Nate's head to kill a quail. Yeah. 100%. They'll be in the. Do you have any funny stories? Like I, you know, you know, I've like people have like bathroom emergencies, and it's just like I heard a guy like barely got his waders off and was like crouching over the front of the boat before he just like no, (laughs) (laughs) no. uh, On the devil, sometimes it's kind of hard to when you tell people they've got to poop in a bucket for four days. Um, they, They you get some weird clients sometimes and. You'll see people try and hold it for the first two or three days, and then like, just, yeah, oh, camp on day three is just horrible for them. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> we used that uh, when I was a uh, backpacking guide in college. We would do like five day trips, and like we take like high school groups, like high school youth groups. Like I did like a uh, you know a drug rehab group, like stuff like yeah. that. And they've never done anything like that. And now they're going into like the wilderness for five days. And, like I'm gonna hold it. And uh, we would, like, if, you know, we had these, like, sugar-free gummy bears. And uh, if people were, like, holding it, like, on day two and they hadn't gone to the bathroom, uh-huh. hey, you want some gummy oh, bears? Oh, yeah, give them a little bit of sugar-free candy. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> they go pretty quick because it's just not healthy yeah. to, to hold it. Oh, it's horrible. That's all they want to do. They're just like, no, I, I can do it. I can yeah. hold it. I can, yeah, no. they. Yeah. What's the worst? I mean, you're uncomfortable, you know. Your stuff, everything's yeah. bad. You're not yeah. designed to no, not don't. use the yeah. restroom for four days. Yeah. Like, no. It's toxic. You're supposed yeah. to get it out of yeah. your body. And the funny part is when people are embarrassed because it's like everyone else, there's eight of us on this trip right now. Everyone else is using this bathroom. Like yeah. no one's going to make fun of you. That you're, We're all pooping in the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I've got to carry it down the river the rest of the trip. You at least, it, you know, it's fire and forget for you. (laughs) I then have to navigate rapids with a five-gallon bucket that at least has a screw-on lid, but then I have to make it down this rapid without getting your waste on me. Fire and forget. Oh, man. I hope I take that from today. (laughs) And uh, one other question we got is, I want to know what fly Nate would choose if he could only throw one saltwater fly forever. Oh, a redfish crack, hands down. Redfish well, crack. Are we fishing inshore or offshore? Let, What's uh, the inshore? Let, inshore yeah. redfish crack. Okay, offshore? Um, offshore, probably just some form of a bait fish deceiver type fly. Mm. Yeah. Uh huh. Probably in like a one knot, just so it kind of cover. you know, not too big, not too small. Or, or like a, I mean, the EP minnow is pretty hard to beat offshore it's yeah. relatively easy to tie you can do it in endless colors and everything eats it from spanish mackerel to 150 pound tuna so okay you know that's hard to beat Covered i mean i would lean towards the game changer because i love that fly <laughs> but they get expensive when you're using them offshore and you can only catch one or two fish on them and then they're annihilated really yeah. just ripped to shreds yeah i mean you know pretty much anything offshore has teeth so yeah. yep it just gets ripped apart. Yeah. Not to mention, probably fairly easy to break off at the same right. time. Yeah. And then you just, not only do you shred flies, you're probably losing 
quite a few on your trip too. Yeah. Oh yeah. So let's talk about your trip to Mexico. Uh, you a couple weeks ago you were Mexico fishing. Yeah, we, we went for two weeks or a little over a week and a half. So we'll give Chase a little shout out because he was on our podcast a couple weeks ago. His podcast came out today, but you caught some awesome fish on his new uh, spiral spook. Yeah, he uh, tied me up some spiral spooks, and it didn't really seem to matter what color. Um, we also hit it perfect. We flew into Puerto Vallarta, um, and then we go fish in a little town called Sayulita. It's about an hour and 20-minute drive from Puerto Vallarta. Um, and so I- you doing salt, or are you doing lake? Oh, no, this is Pacific Off- Ocean. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean— where this little town, I've been going down there now for about 25 years, 26 years. Um, it's a cove, a northwest-facing bay on the mainland of Mexico, about four hours south of Baja. There's several rivers that come through the jungle and dump into the Pacific Ocean all around this area. Um, but so we fly in, you get a little suburban. They dry. Uh, Do you DIY this trip? So we do. I do a little bit of DIY fishing, but I have a guy that I fish with down there that we've been fishing with for quite a while. Okay, uh, his name's uh, Captain Rahis, and he has a company called uh, Just Fishing Sayulita. Super good dude. Um, very affordable. Uh, it's like five hundred bucks for a full day of fishing, and that's wow. for up to four clients on the boat. He Whoa. runs a twenty-five foot super ponga with a big shade canopy on it, so the wives and kids can come. If they're not having fun fishing, they can hang out and break. eat snacks and sit in the shade and, and you stuff like say, that. You might have already said this, fly or conventional? So I pretty much do all fly down there. Mm-hmm. If it gets crazy windy, I'll grab a spinning rod and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I mean, you know, for the most part, it's all fly rod. And it's cool because they're, you know, their their shelf, their continental shelf is so close in that you might only be three miles off the beach, but you're in 700 feet of water. Yeah. So, and you don't know, okay. I mean, we catch Dorado, you catch, you know, Wahoo, you catch, uh, they have a Sierra mackerel, which just looks like a giant Spanish mackerel on steroids. Um, there's like seven different types of jacks that live down there. Five or six different types of snapper. They call them pargo, but it's the same fish, what we would call a snapper. What was your fish of the trip? Um, well, I got two really, on Chase's spook fly, um, we got into, I mean, the Dorado were just everywhere. They had had a hurricane about two weeks before we got there, so there was just debris line. I mean, we got about two miles off the beach, and there was a stretch of debris for seven miles down the coastline. Um, mostly stuff from the jungle. It's very, you know, it's not as populated um, where we're at. You know, Puerto Vallarta is a huge city. So there was still some, you know, housewares and stuff floating out in the ocean. Yeah. But, you know, we pulled up on one debris line, and there was probably a 70-foot hardwood tree at, that had washed down one of the rivers out of the rainforest just floating out in the middle oh, of the ocean. Man. And you pull up on it, and, I mean, there's 200 Dorados circling around this thing. Really? And it got to the point where you're, you're, you would lay a fly out, and a smaller two- or three-foot Dorado would come up to eat it, and you could pick it up and then lay it out to the bigger bull, you know, that's <laughs> oh, four, four-and-a-half feet behind. Why are they circling a tree? Is that just the only structure that's out there, and they're finding the yeah, structure? I'm, yeah, they're going to—those Dorado, their, their appetite's so big, they've got to constantly be eating. So, like, they're, they're moving from every bit of structure looking for bait fish up under these shade structures. Gotcha. And so the bigger the shade structure, the more, more amount bait of bait fish, fish is going to be under you. And yeah. it was cool. You know, we saw, like, I'd never known, and I've been fishing down there for a while now, I'd never seen triple tail in the Pacific Ocean, and we pulled up onto a weed line this last trip, and there's probably 35 triple tail laying underneath. Did you get there. one? They were all small. They, okay. I mean, they were like, 
you know, maybe a pound. Yeah. But um, we caught a few small triple tail. We caught some of these cool, I mean, they're only like five inches long, but these little purple trigger fish, and they wouldn't even get the hook in the mouth, but you'd throw like your EP minnow up to the weed line and start uh-huh. stripping out. Like 20 of these trigger fish would come out, and they'd start biting onto the fibers of that fly, and their teeth would get stuck in it. And oh, you'd end up man. getting them all the way back <laughs> to the That's boat. awesome. But, you know, I caught uh, – my two, I caught two Dorado that were r- right around 48 inches, and that was pretty awesome. Um, the, that first day out fishing, I think we got 17 Dorado in the boat. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I've never done offshore fishing. I really want to, though. What When you go out offshore, because I just have no way to mentally put my mind around, what are you guys looking for? What kind of structure? How do you know where to throw your line? So you're looking for, you know, especially for Dorado, you're looking for debris or something floating on the surface to create shade and create, you know, some sort of a habitat. A lot of people don't realize when you're out in the ocean, you know, Pacific, Atlantic, doesn't matter. It's essentially a giant desert. Unless there's something out there floating around, there is no structure. There is no place to hide. And over the years, I've learned quite a bit of it. But watching these guys down there, they're reading current lines on the surface, like watching water direction. It's almost like reading the surface of a river. They're looking for, like, cross currents. They're looking for different water colorations from, like, different water temperatures will create different water colors and stuff like that. So they're looking for that. We're always looking for birds diving. Um, that's a big thing, you know, out there, if you see a bunch of gannets or boobies or uh, frigate birds circle in a spot, they're usually over a big school of bait fish. Okay. Um, another thing they do out there is they look for dolphins when they get the big spinner dolphins and stuff coming in. Um, if you see a big pack of dolphins chasing a school of like, uh, anchovies, there's probably going to be tuna underneath those dolphins waiting for the dolphins to corral those anchovies. And then the tuna will come in and eat them. Okay. So it's it's you 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 know you've got to find certain stuff. The, another thing is you know those guys like they've been doing it their whole lives. They're they they mark a lot. Not almost none of them run a GPS or a fish finder. Um, they know the bottom of the area by mountain peaks off of the shoreline. Okay. Because um, the mountain it it looks I mean it looks like you're fishing in Colorado when you look up into the mountains, but it's all yeah. tropical rainforest. But I mean there's these giant peaks, you know, just huge mountains. Um, but you'll watch it, like, we'll be running the boat, and they'll go, you know, five peaks down and then out from a big rock. And then, you know, you're in 300 feet of water, and then you look under the boat, and there's a big pile of rocks with, you know, 12 feet from the surface. So a lot of times you're fishing big underground, you know, underwater rock piles. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's super, super fun. I highly recommend if you want to do it, you know, if you want to do some offshore fishing. And the trip's fun. The town is... Super fun to hang out in. There's, you know, nowadays there's Airbnbs and good, you know, really good restaurants. And there's still, you know, it's still a little bit of gritty Mexico and a little bit of, you know, comforts for the missus or whoever sounds, you want to bring. Sounds like in. a good buddy trip too. Oh, it's super. Yeah. We've been talking about doing like a, you know, because usually when I go, the wife comes with me and she loves going out fishing, but not as much as I do. So it gets to a point where it's like, you know, hey, I'm going to stay back at the house and then. I'm out fishing by myself, which I don't mind, but, you know, I'd really like to do, like, a friend trip and take, like, five or six guys down, rent two boats, and then, you know, just spend, like, four days just nonstop fishing. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds awesome. And it's really cool. You can look at different times of year. You're more likely going to catch different fish. Late summer through early fall is going to be just gangbusters for Dorado. If you want to go down and catch mahi-mahi on the fly rod, that's the time to go. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to go for bigger stuff, you want to go for wahoo, tuna, sailfish, you go later in the year. More what we would consider like winter time. Uh-huh. 
that's when, you know, you can catch 100-pound tuna two miles off the beach wow. December, January. Did you catch any tuna on this trip? So we didn't get any tuna this trip. Uh, we got into some big albacore, like false albacore, um, and big Pacific bonita and stuff like that, but what, no true yellowfin or bluefin. What rod are you throwing offshore? So this last trip, actually, a buddy of ours from Hawaii, um, Pelagos Fly Rods, mm-hmm. McLean, he made me an 11 weight and a 12 weight that I brought, and they both did awesome. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a sp- kind of reel that you like? Because I know, you know we all like nice reels on our five weights, <laughs> but they don't really matter. Um, I really, I re- <laughs> yeah. you know what I a mean? Different I really, really dig the Nautilus Silver King. Um, it's a super large arbor reel, has plenty of drag, holds plenty of backing. I think I've got something like 400 yards of 65-pound uh, hatch gel spun yep. on there, which – you know, other than a big tuna, you're pretty set on any yeah. of those fish down there. And having a tough drag is really important down there, especially when you're fishing rock piles for the big snapper and the, the um, jacks and stuff, because you've got to stop them. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, you know, you could run straight 60-pound fluoro, and if they get you in the rocks, you're screwed. Right. Yeah, especially a big snapper. You hook, I mean, I've never landed a big kubera yet down there. That's like another bucket list fish for me. I've I've been on the hunt for one for the past seven years of going down there. Um, I haven't broke the 20-pound mark yet on the fly rod, but uh, I've hooked several, and, I mean, it's, you might as well just hook your fly rod to the back of a truck and try and stop it. Oh, like, man. They're almost impossible to put the brakes mm. on. And there you said 20 pounds is a big one. No, 20 pounds is just a – that's like your regular Kubera. I mean, yeah. they get upwards of 90 pounds. Oh, okay. oh wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, they're giant. So then literally a truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And they're real good at finding a cave somewhere. Like that, a lot of times you'll think you've got him on, and then he'll go down, you know, 50, 60 feet and go another 30 or 40 feet back into the rocks. So then the problem is not only did you now lose your fish, but you're probably going to lose like the front 30 feet of your fly line trying to pull it out of the rocks. So take extra fly lines. Yeah, extra fly lines. Um, I fish a lot of, I mean, it's it, most of the time it's probably overkill, you know, like. This last trip, I brought eights and nine weights with me because there are Pacific snook down there, and we catch them from the beach and around rock piles. So it's fun to have a lighter rod, and we'll bring light rods offshore. Uh, a couple well, last summer, we went and uh, broke some rods. Uh, nothing cool. It was my fault. <laughs> I got in a hurry to get down to the boat and was running out of the Airbnb and slipped on the tile and fell backwards and the rod tips went into the ceiling fan. Oh, so we went from having six fly rods on the trip to two fly rods on the trip real quick. Um, and we had an eight weight and an 11 weight left. And so we said, screw it and took the eight weight offshore the next day. And, uh, it held up. We didn't break it. And, you know, we caught some good fish on it, but you're definitely undergunned. I mean, if you're really wanting to offshore fish, you know, 10, 11, 12, and then, uh, I mean, I'm adding a 14 weight to the quiver yeah. just for tuna and bigger stuff. Really? Yeah. yeah. Tuna and sailfish, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> when you're fishing for sailfish, are you blind casting, or is that thing where you're trying to bring them in, and then you kind of side cast? The, the only time them? I've ever tried it, I've never hooked one. That's another fish I'd love to get my hands on. Um, but, yeah, we've tried the bait and switch deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You throw some throw, right. throw some bait out there. When they come up for it, then you're side casting. Yeah, or form. they'll do like a like a little topwater plug or even like a trolling lure, but they'll mm-hmm. leave it. They'll, they'll take the hooks off of it. Uh-huh. And so when you've got that, they'll troll that lure to get that fish fired up and behind the boat, and then they'll reel it in close so then you can, you can cast to it because you're not ripping a 50 foot cast with a 14 weight. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, 
Especially, you know. Accurately. <laughs> if you're throwing a 750-grain sinking line, like, good luck getting more oh. than one haul out of it. Yeah. Man. Yeah. No, for sure. And, you know, if you're going to throw heavy lines, I highly recommend, like, practicing before you go. <laughs> this last trip, we did six days out on the boat, and I can t- my forearm, I mean, I I really felt like I was on the verge of, like, tearing a muscle in my forearm. Really? After yeah. casting, you know, 500-grain sink lines for six days. Yeah. Uh, it wears you out. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> Nate, how'd you get into hunting and fishing? Um, I was real fortunate. My dad was very into this um, our entire lives. Uh, I mean, some of my oldest memories I have are going hunting with my dad and my brother. Um, I mean, we did. You have an older brother or younger older, brother? I'm the youngest. Yeah. yeah. I have an older brother and an older sister. The older sister, she loves outdoors and everything, but she she went hunting with us like twice and just was never into it, which is funny because now she loved, I mean, if you bring her a deer that you want butchered and quartered and turned into sausage, she can do it in a couple of days for you. But uh, she she's not into the actual hunting, um, which is fine. If that's what she's into, that's what she's into. She loves horses. She's a horsewoman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but yeah, no, I was just super fortunate, man. Um, we never did lots of family vacation stuff to like Disney world or amusement parks. I mean, anytime we were going anywhere, it was usually to a hunting lease or somebody's ranch or down to the beach to go fish or, you know, just, we had a duck camp for a long time when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, I mean, just pretty much from day one, you know, we've been out hunting. Yeah. That's awesome. You just had a successful pup, Texas public land hunt. Yeah. Will yeah. you walk us through that? Because you drew a tag. Yeah, it was cool. And it was, you know, it it was a high fence place. It's Kerr Wildlife Management Area. Oh, no way. You got that one. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's, uh, it's I mean, I knew it was going to be cool when I drew it. I was really excited. Kerr, for people that don't know, is where Texas Parks and Wildlife does a majority of their whitetail research. Yeah. It's neat. It's a, it's a neat page to follow, too. It was really yeah. cool. Uh, the Everyone there was super, super helpful and nice. Um we showed up for orientation. And it was archery hunt. No, this was rifle. Rifle, okay. Yeah. Um, I brought my bow because I was hoping they would let me hunt archery. Um, but then the head biologist, they really wanted everyone to harvest a deer because they do quite a bit of research after you shoot the deer. So they said that they preferred everyone hunt with rifle, which was fine. Just to raise your success odds. Yeah, how exactly. M- how many other people were out there hunting? So there were 12 hunters drawn for this hunt. I think they did six hunts in total this year on that wildlife management area. So two were out at a time. No, no. So they all 12, well, actually only nine of us showed up to orientation. So there were three hunters never showed up. Okay. okay. It's seven, almost 7,000 acres, like 6,800 something. But they give you a unit. And then you can hunt anywhere you want in, in that, that unit. unit. Yeah. So you're not hunting someone else's unit? No, no. Versa. You don't have to worry about anyone walking into your area, oh, everything. Nice. It's all, you know, it's high fence perimeter, but it's all low fence in the middle. Are you wearing sectioned uh, off. blaze orange? Yeah, you got to wear blaze orange, yeah. a vest and a hat. And then they had blinds, really nice blinds set up. Um, and then, but you were allowed to, if you wanted to stalk hunt, you could stalk hunt. You could go sit in the bushes. If you wanted to bring a pop-up blind and just hunt an area that didn't have a blind. Really? You could set up that. Um, and then they showed you where your blinds were. Um, I actually ended up kind of getting lucky, and they thought I was going to have a second hunter with me. So I ended up getting two units to hunt on. So I had, everyone else had about 400 acres to hunt on. I ended up having like 700 acres to oh, hunt nice. on. Oh, nice. Um, which was kind of cool because I had like a buffer zone. I ended up hunting the western unit that I had 
which put me on the far west fence line, but I had another 300-acre buffer between me and the next hunter. Yeah. So it was kind of a cool deal. But yeah, it was very successful. Um, you know, how many day, how many days of hunting? So we got a week. Get? Normally, okay. it's a four day hunt, but because they wanted everyone to be successful, they gave us an extra three days on the wow, hunt. Okay. Um, we were allowed one whitetail buck and then a spike or doe. Um, the other cool thing is, since it's uh, all for deer management and research, we didn't have to use any tags off of our hunting license. Wow. The unit gave this us tags. This hunt just keeps getting better and better and better. Well, and it's unlimited exotics, and they do have them out there, but they lost a bunch in the freeze, the biologists were explaining to the us. Axis or they have Axis, Audad, and they used to see fallow out there, but they haven't seen them in years. Okay. And then, you know, as many pigs as you want to shoot. Yeah, yeah. But really, so the freeze affected the Axis. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, big time. I did not. Yeah, I haven't looked into any it at of all. those. You know, if you overlay like longitude, latitude of like the U.S. to Africa, and well, India, India is where they're from. Right, right, they're from India. But I mean, it's the Nil guy, the Axis, the Black Buck, the Audad. All those animals are from regions just like right. It's very us. similar. So very we throw similar it climate. anyway out. The only di- and the Audad handle the cold a little bit better. They live up in high mountains right. and stuff, but. The, the axis and the nil guy and stuff like that, they're not designed to no. handle sub-zero temperatures and stuff. They're designed to cool off quickly. So, yeah, so they said they had lost a bunch. I didn't see any exotics because I was really hoping to shoot at least the Audad. I've, that's another animal I've really been wanting to get one. But, no, the hunt was cool. They had really nice facilities. Um, what did you do for – did you just drive out there every day you hunted or did they so have places I, out there? Well, so the way – we had to go to orientation on Friday – so I drove out for orientation and hunted that afternoon. And then we had the lower Colorado River cleanup, the Loco Trash Bash, that following day. So I went out and hunted and then drove home, got home at like midnight, and then went to the Trash Bash with Evan. Yep. Um, I was pretty tired, but it all worked out. I, I got in the stand at like 11 a.m., and they don't do any supplemental feeding out there, but for the hunts, you're allowed to bring in food if you want. So I put a little bit of corn out, and I put a bunch of alfalfa out. Um, and, uh, I had a nice buck come in probably within an hour of sitting down and he was nice and wide, but he looked pretty young. And they also, they asked us to try and shoot deer over five years old. They kind of showed us, you know, go through the photos. This is what you're looking for. And so I had this big buck come out and I mean, I'm looking at him through binoculars. I put the rifle on him and I'm trying to measure him up. And, you know, he probably was about four years old, you know, maybe four and a half who really knows, but he just didn't have big brow tines, and I really wanted a deer with big brow tines. He was real wide. I mean, he was definitely outside his ears. He was just a big, typical 10, but he had, like, little tiny, like, two-inch, like, mule deer-looking brow tines. Mm-hmm. So, and he was hanging out. Like, he was down in this little gully, sitting in the shade. I mean, he bedded, like, three or four times, you know, like, went and laid in the shade, got back up and milled around. So, he was over there, and I was kind of paying attention to him, but I wasn't sold on I'm going to shoot him. And plus, it was the first day of the hunt, so I was just like, you know, do I really want to just be done right now? You know, I can come back and hunt exotics and shoot a doe and all that. And so I was sitting there, and then I had some small bucks come out, a little basket rack eight and another small ten, and I'm watching them. And uh, and this is on uh, Sunday. This was on Friday. This was the first day of the hunt. Oh, okay. Oh, this is the very first, yeah, first day. Before, I thought we were past the trash bag. No, no. So, so the reason <laughs> I got home late is uh, – I mean, I can make it shorter, but this deer came out and he was big. I mean, I could, he, from like 115 yards, I could see that he was heavy horned. Um, he wasn't really turning towards me and, you know, they've, they have a, they've got to be outside of the tips of their ears. 
and he kept having his ears cocked back, and so I couldn't really get a good measurement on him. I'm looking at him, looking at him, and some does come by, and he takes off after the does. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, that was a big deer, but I'm, you know, I, he's probably gone. So I'm sitting around, and that, that other 10 points down in that bottom still, and I'm looking at him, and I'm like, man, he's looking pretty good, but, you know, I'm going to hold out. Because I planned on hunting. I had the trash bash, and then I had Sunday I had some stuff to do, so I was going to come back on Monday and hunt the whole rest of the week. But then, like, 40 minutes before shooting light, that Big Ten came back out, and I finally got a good look at him, and I saw that he was outside of his ears, so he was definitely legal. He had a big sway in his back, a big pot belly. I mean, I don't know, man. I've You know, he was a big deer, and the mass looked good. His brow tines looked good. Just, I liked everything about him. He's not super wide, but, you know, he's a cool-looking deer. And... uh it starts getting dark, and I was like, you know what, man? I mean, I could pass on this deer and possibly get a shot at another deer, or I could pass on this deer and not shoot a Anything. buck the rest of the trip. Yeah. Well, shoot, that's a nice deer. And so I said, you know, screw it. This is the biggest deer I've ever put crosshairs on, so I'm going <laughs> to shoot him. It's like 115, 117-yard shot, 7-millimeter 08. And so you cocked your hammer back. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. There was no hammer. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> no, see, it's mine a, has a hammer on yeah. it. It's an <laughs> old Remington bolt-action 7-millimeter 08, uh, Remington 700. Yeah, I mean, just let one rip, uh, hit him right where I was putting it, you know, a little high in the shoulder, not to, you know, everybody jokes around about didn't go 20. Uh, he didn't go two feet. He literally dropped where I hit him. You know, tried to pick his head up once, laid his head down, and it was over. And, you know, a lot of times when you shoot a big buck, everybody calls it ground shrinkage. You walk up on that deer, and he looks, you know, he doesn't look quite as big as when you had him in your crosshairs. Well, this deer had zero ground shrinkage. And uh, when I put my hands on him, you know, and you, you can almost not close your hand around the, the base of that antler and the, the mass in his main beams, you know, I was I was grinning like a, 12 year old kid at christmas yeah, you know? that's like, awesome. um and it was cool man it's the biggest whitetail i've ever shot uh he's 145 inches um how much did he weigh 218 pounds whoa yeah. okay he was 158 pounds gutted so probably you know roughly 40 50 pounds of gut yeah so. yeah yeah i mean he was he was a big big deer. you getting him mounted yeah i'm I, at first i was kind of on the fence about it because i didn't shoot him with a bow and i'm one of those goobers that super you know purist <laughs> yeah I, I guess I mean, that's a, a if you could call it that I mean I'm not a purist because I did go on a rifle hunt but, right right <laughs> but yeah I, I kind of felt like you know it was a little bit of cheating in the long run um after looking at him and talking about it you know like I, I don't know if I'm ever going to shoot another deer this, right especially a hill country deer that's yeah. what to me was awesome and yeah it's behind a high fence but there is no supplemental feeding they're not getting extra protein yeah. you know these deer are just it's what you can if with proper, I think it's kind of cool. It's a research area. Yeah. Oh, it's super cool. And yeah. that was part of the coolest part was getting to talk to the biologists after the hunt and them having pictures of these deer from previous years. And you can see that, you know, you see some guys on a ranch and they want to kill a, a slick six whitetail that's two years old because they say it's never going to get better than that. But then this biologist has totally proved it wrong by showing us four-year-old pictures of some of these deer and they look like what everybody says is a coal buck. And then if you let the, like the deer I shot was seven plus years old. If you let them get to that over five year old age, six, seven, eight years old, they can grow into it. Yeah. They can grow into it. Yeah. And it's just right conditions. And you know, they had a deer that last year probably would have scored over 200 inches, 
but something happened to him, and he and he was still a huge deer. He scored 176 inches. Right, that was the biggest deer shot during the hunt. But he was over 200 inches last year. But and he's only seven years old. But he dropped down, and it could be lack of food, water. He got injured. Who knows? Right. You know. Yeah. So yeah. So what was the process like after? <clears throat> so you kill your deer. So I shot my deer. You you know. You're in your hunt by yourself. Um, if you do need help, and that's the other cool thing out there is it's kind of a, a cool spot if you haven't ever hunted because some of the other public land draw stuff, you've got to do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go help you recover or anything. Well, out at Kerr, they encourage if you're having trouble finding your deer or you're having trouble getting it out of where it is to come back to their ranger headquarters and someone will go with you out into the field to help you recover that's your cool. deer. So they really are almost geared towards like a – newbie hunter for lack of a better word i mean anybody obviously can go out there right and hunt it's like a guided but, hunt but it, like it, they it, really it, help it's essentially like going to a really nice ranch but no one goes and sits with you in the blind yeah you know what i mean yeah. like yeah in the facility they they just built i think she was telling us it was like two years ago right before the quarantine and everything they finished like a really nice facility they have a full walk-in cooler i hung my deer for five days before i you know cleaned him yeah so you know he got to sit in that cooler for five days makes it way easier to clean them but yeah it it was just really really well set up that's so um can you camp out there do they have so you can't you can't camp there's no cabins the um there's uh the shriner campground in kerrville Uh or the koa is the closest to campground can anybody can you bring a friend a buddy so the only way you can bring someone is when you sign up for the draw hunt, you have to put their name on your draw tag. Okay. And that's, that's it. the only like way. A, you like can a bring group them. hunt. Unless you're a minor and then it's your guardian your, parent your guardian. or guardian can come. So home. okay, let me ask you about that. So if you put if you want to take someone out with you, do you put their name on there someone to go with you, or do they have an opportunity to draw that same tag as well? No, they can hunt as well. Okay, so you yeah. guys could both right. draw together yes. and yeah. both go hunt and shoot. It's yeah. just like what we talked about with Clay Roberts on the, every, yeah. you know, the two two to four guys or whoever. It depends on. So this was together. an e-postcard hunt. It's when you when you when you get your public land permit. There's your regular draw tags that you pay for, yeah. mm-hmm. and then there's the e-postcard tags, which are free. You don't pay any, like, there's no tag fee. You just fee. put them in for them, right? They're, you, yeah, they're just, they're like, you get like 10 of them. It's yeah. like essentially like 10. But it's like the, what Clay was saying, it's like the true lottery. It's, yeah, it's. There's, there's not a point system. There's no so point for system you, for yeah, e-postcard. It's just, it's just luck of the in. draw. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Every time. Yeah. And this year, I mean, it was awesome. You know, we drew Lower Rio Grande Valley Teniente for a whitetail nil guy hunt in January, and then I didn't, you know, I didn't even really think about anything else. We had, you know, we were in second draw for a bunch of stuff, but that's just kind of if no one shows, they're going to redraw tags. Yeah. But then, yeah, I got an email probably a month before the hunt. Hey, you won this tag too. And so. That's awesome. Yeah. That's it awesome. It was cool. It was a good time. I haven't ever signed up for e-postcard card, but I put in for quite a few draws this year and did not. Get I drawn. Did, I did I'm the postcard last year, but I did not. I'm hoping for, for it, my but. points to pay off in the future. <laughs> I met. I missed the deadline. I forgot to sign up for anything, so yeah. I, don't, yeah. I, don't, I won't be accruing any points. And I mean, I prefer you know nobody sign up for this stuff because it's real fun <laughs> winning all yeah. these things. <laughs> but uh, in all honesty, I mean, I put about 200 bucks into tags every year in yeah. Texas, and I mean, shit, I haven't drawn. This is my first time drawing in five or six years. Well, that's a good draw, but, man. But even that's if you think awesome. about it. So I spent twelve hundred bucks over the past six years putting in draw tags, but I drew two this year. Yeah, and hell, you got a you got a just a real f- nice buck. Yeah, I already shot a hundred and forty five inch whitetail. That alone, if you were to go pay a ranch mm-hmm. to do it, it's going to be in you know three four thousand dollars or more. Yeah, yeah. 
And then we also are going to get to go hunt whitetails in South Texas and Nilgai. Yeah. Whereas if in, even any of us are successful on that hunt, it's already you it's know, already paid for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And plus, yeah, it's just fun, times. man. Who cares? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, have a good time. Not to bash on KOA, but I'd highly recommend camping at the Shriners <laughs> place uh, if you want to camp a little more than KOA is. You know, just you're essentially just camping in a parking lot by the road. Yeah, there's no, um, there's no it's camping. Not it's just really fun. It was more of a place to sleep. <laughs> yeah. So how so uh, how long did you end up actually spinning out there? So I hunted that Friday and had you know shot the buck that Friday evening. Um, came home, we did the loco trash bash. And then Sunday hung out. I was planning on heading back Monday morning, um, and I don't know if it was cedar fever, allergy, something kicked my ass and put my dick in the dirt, and I was in bed for two days. Yeah. Um, so I ended up getting back out there Tuesday evening and hunted Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And saw, anything? I mean, tons of whitetails, um, a few does that I, you know, I could have shot one, but at this point I already had enough meat. that, and I, yeah. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't really feel like I needed to shoot another whitetail. I was kind of more in the the hunt for an exotic at that point yeah. or some big pigs. I like shooting pigs. Yeah. But yeah, I hunted, I ended up hunting four days in total and it was super good time. I mean, I will always put in for this hunt every year and maybe draw it again, you know. Yeah. I'd love to, they do an archery hunt out there, so it'd be awesome to draw archery. And if you never hunted turkeys, I highly recommend putting in for a turkey tag out there. They do a spring turkey hunt. You were sending me t- pictures. Just I don't think I've so many. ever seen this many turkeys in my life. When I, the one of the days I decided to go walk and see if I could find some awdad, and uh-huh. there's a bunch of big rolling hills, so I was getting up on hills and kind of glassing valleys and stuff. And uh, I must have seen eighty turkeys in one day. It was I always insane. see turkeys outside of turkey season. Yeah, I never. <laughs> I, when the our, day turkey season hits, I do not see a turkey. <laughs> see, our, we, I mean, we have. Very phenomenal turkey hunting on uh, my brother-in-law's hunting lease. We usually tag out mm-hmm. by the end of turkey season, but this was 10 times the amount of birds. I mean, I've got video of one standing three feet in front of me <laughs> and just motionless, and the bird's trying to figure out what I am, and it just keeps walking. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But, yeah, it was it was a very cool experience, very well set up, and everyone was very knowledgeable. If you ever have any questions about whitetail, those were the people to ask. Okay. It was very, very cool. That's awesome. What kind of research are they doing out there? Do you know? Um, a little bit of everything. They, they, they test all the deer for CWD, um, but they've never had a case of it in that county in Texas. So it's kind of more of just a precaution uh, than uh, they're actually worried that someone's going to have it. Um, but I think they also do it because there are a lot of high game, high fence game ranches out there. And, you know, there's a chance that a deer somehow got on one of those, you know, whatever. But, uh, they do that. They're testing, they're looking at antler growth. Um, they're looking at, you know, the effects of like drought versus not drought, you know, and it's all done natural. They don't do anything to interfere with these deer out there you know there are no feeders on the property there's nothing the only difference is that there's a high fence around the property right exactly. otherwise they are like any other deer yes yeah mm-hmm. and they're not these deer will you know they're they're not going to walk up to you they're not gonna you know they're not like hey what yeah. do you usually feed me <laughs> yeah yeah no they're they're not they're not tame deer whatsoever yeah. i mean there was a few guys on the hunt that didn't shoot a, a deer really you know so not, yeah. ev- not everybody was not everyone was successful Does, did everybody see something uh yeah, I mean everybody saw some deer. Not everyone saw legal deer. Um, okay, 
you know, and some guys shot ended up they didn't get to hunt as long. They shot smaller bucks. Just you know, they just wanted to shoot. Yeah, like exactly. That something. was it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, it was it was cool. I I, I had a really good time. That's, That's a awesome. good hunt, man. That sound that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, you used to be a tattoo artist, didn't you? I did. Will yeah. you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, How did I you mean, get into that? Um, and I have a question. Okay. How does a tattoo artist practice? Being a tattoo artist, because I can imagine if I was to draw. <laughs> well, no, did you use the orange trick? Is that what you do? So kind of. Um, <laughs> so I, I got into tattooing pretty much right out of high school. I uh, I didn't really want to go to college, and you know this wasn't even this was just me young and not wanting to go to school anymore. I was fed up with school. Um, high school was enough for me, and I had started getting tattooed. I had friends that worked at tattoo shops. I'd always been interested in art. Um, always painted and drawn and stuff my entire life. And uh, I was like, man, you know, this is kind of cool. I've got friends that are making money doing it, you know, something I can get into. And so I served an apprenticeship, which it's just like anything else. You know, you're pretty much just the grunt. You're going to do whatever they tell you to do. Um, you're It's a lot of mopping and cleaning up and going and getting food for people and picking up dudes, kids from school and all <laughs> sorts of shit. Yeah, yeah. But no, the, the practicing deal, I mean, you can tattoo on like a banana or orange, but it's still not tattooing a person. One, a person moves. Tattooing doesn't feel good. They're not going to sit perfectly still. Um, and then your skin moves on top. You know, if you touch your skin, it moves. So you, you've got to try and keep it. Peel. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, no, you'd actually be surprised that, you know, when you're apprenticing and you're offering free tattoos or $20 tattoos, people will line Jump up around the block. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get a free tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's pretty easy you'd to find. you get a free tattoo even if it was... Like questionable? Oh, heck yeah! Especially like someplace <laughs> like my thigh or something. Yeah. No, I yeah, do it right You know, now. you do. Some people do <laughs> See, little practice tattoos mentality. on ourselves, and no, I, I got a tattoo from uh, Chris. Maybe you recommended him to me, Chris Carlton. Mm-hmm, yeah, that's yeah, a he good did, buddy of mine. He did mine. Yeah, heck yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, man, I had to like, man, what tattoo do I want? And I like <laughs> now I want more, but I'm just being super picky. No, you just do and it. And yeah. I do it with somebody that I trust. Right. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, well, there's up. there's like two groups of people. And, you know, I probably wouldn't be as heavily tattooed as I am other than that I worked at tattoo shops for 10 years. But you see it a lot. There's the person who wants everything to be exactly how they want it and perfect on their body. And then there's the people that don't really give a shit. And, you know, you get goofy tattoos and just have a good time. I'm in group one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I would go get a goofy tattoo. Although I did uh, have a thought for the Ironfly. What? I saw something else, like another Ironfly, uh, the Pig Farm Ink guys, when they do Ironflies, they had a tattoo artist come out, and they were just doing, like, wacky yeah. tattoos. Yeah. Oh. I would do that 100%. Oh, heck yeah. If we we'll, get a tattoo we'll just artist. just bring tattoo machines to yeah. the Ironfly. Will you do them? <laughs> yeah. Dude, sure. I'll get a tattoo yeah. from you. You guys do, like, little flash tattoos? I mean, great. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I have a goal. I want to catch a redfish on the fly on the coast because I've never done that You haven't yet. caught a redfish yet? Nope. Mm-mm. Have you really? Not? I have not, no. But I told Nate, I was like, Nate, I want to catch one with you because then you can tattoo one on me and he, he won't go for it. And he's, like, <laughs> he's like, no, it ain't happening. Oh, man. <laughs> How long were you a tattoo artist for? Uh, shit, till like 2009. Uh, I tattooed pretty solid for eight years and then... Uh, I got in a car accident and I severed all the ligaments in my right hand oh. and had to like Doctor Strange, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> little, little less important. I wasn't doing open heart surgery, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but no. And and then I, I after I had surgery, I had two surgeries to get my hand to work again, and um, 
Actually, I tattooed for a little while afterwards, but I have pretty bad nerve damage, and I lose feeling in my from my forearm down. Um, and it's not any rhyme or reason to when it happens. And uh, I'd be in the middle of doing a tattoo, and I would lose feeling in my hand, and it might take 10 minutes for it to come back, or it might take an hour. And it got to the point where I felt like I was doing a disservice by, you know, like starting a tattoo and then having to tell the person to come back to finish it kind of yeah. deal. Yeah. And then... In all honesty, I kind of got burnt out on the tattoo, I don't want to say lifestyle just because it sounds dumb, but the tattoo lifestyle of working late and kind of, you know, it's almost like working at a bar, like you might not be getting home till two or three in the morning sometimes, and uh, I was just having more fun being outdoors, and so I kind of just, you know, this wasn't really working out, I'd put all my eggs into that basket, Um, what's something else I love to do? And I can be my own boss at it. And so I rolled over into guiding fly fishing. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. awesome. Uh, what's the uh, one more tattoo question? What is the favorite, ta- your favorite tattoo that you ever put on someone? On someone? Man. Who's your walking portrait? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple cool ones, man. When I was living out in California, I tattooed a bunch of guys I fished with. I did like some yellowtail and dorado tattoos cool. on some guys yeah. and stuff. Those are real cool. Um, my sister's got some stuff that I did a cool bobcat head on her and a copperhead snake, just some Texas themed tattoos nice. on yes. her and stuff. That's What's awesome. your style? Uh, Neo traditional, uh-huh. you know, American traditional yeah. is mostly what I've messed with. Um, I also, I mean, I like doing a lot of like weird psychedelic trippy stuff too, as well. You know, fish with multiple eyes and weird. St- yeah, I don't know. It's kind of hard to describe. Yeah, playing yeah. with it. But yeah, yeah for just sure. weird, you know, acid trip looking fish and <laughs> stuff like that. And That's awesome. So now how long have you been guiding now for? Uh, full time now for five years, which isn't super long in the guide world. But, you know, that's when I got into it. Yeah. <laughs> so you're guiding here in the hill country now. Yeah. And uh, what are your go-to seasons i know we're like moving to the guad um and that's probably like if i was a guest your money maker for sure the guad is good i mean we're busy year round though i guide with a couple of buddies of mine we have a company called go outside expeditions uh ryan shaper R- yeah ryan and, uh, we're supposed to get him on the show matt wally as well he's I don't know uh if i know matt he's a, a friend of our he moved down uh from colorado recently super good dude i mean you want to talk about somebody that can do anything like your truck could break down and your trailer tongue breaks and he'll have it all fixed before you're done, you know, done fishing kind of deal. Okay. He's an awesome dude to know. But yeah, I mean, we fish the San Marcos a lot. Um, I really, I love bass fishing on the fly rod, especially being up here um, and targeting carp on the fly rod is another probably favorite of mine. But yeah, we fish, you know, the guad is this time of year, November to February, even early March is going to be... Yeah, yeah. So pretty much every trip is out there, or is it still kind of some bass stuff? We do some wintertime bass. Yeah, I, do, I, I fish bass quite a bit throughout the year just because I live so close to the Colorado River, well, especially when it's a seventy degree day. You're right, like, exactly. Some, let's go yeah, yeah. Some bass. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard, you know. One boat ramp's five minutes from my house, and the other one's an hour and fifteen. Oh so yeah, see so you like that. If, <laughs> yeah. I, if somebody wants to do something other than trout fishing, we're gonna go fish yeah. the Colorado. <laughs> yeah, you're like, let's do it. Yeah. What uh, What boat do you run? I have an Air Super Puma. Nice. Yeah. Me too. Uh, awesome. Old Yeller. Yeah. <laughs> old, old Yeller. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like it a lot. Uh, I just send it back and got my bottoms redone and new zippers put in and everything. Nice. So hopefully you can scrape another four or five years out of it. Yeah. Scrape is a good word. <laughs> yeah. Especially this year. Shoot, the water's better than last year though. Yeah. So. 
No, I saw the flows. I think the flows in the water are like oh, barely over a hundred. Yeah, but last year they were fifty-five oh, and sixty. Like the sixties, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 which is horrible. Um, what do you recommend people uh, before they come out on a trip with you? What is your like tips of best? If they want to come on a trip with you, what can they come prepared with to have a great experience with you? Man, just just come to enjoy being outside. You know the the fishing. I know it's a guided fishing trip, but to me the fishing should be just the bonus like you know as guides you can't control when the fish are going to eat you can't no matter how much you look at a tide chart or a moon lunar tables or barometric pressure you know there's days where it looks like it's going to be perfect and nothing's biting nothing bites and then the days where it's terrible weather and you have a 20 fish day i don't know just have an open mind you know if 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 it's tough fishing maybe you know enjoy nature you know if if it's your you know a lot of people that pay for a guide trip that might be their one of five outdoor adventures for the year kind of thing so you know find find beauty in everything you know not just the fishing and if you're you know if it's a slow day fishing and you're new to fly fishing look at it as a really good day to have someone with you in the boat that can help you with your cast or you know, ask questions about the flies you're using and why you're using them or, you know, techniques for fishing structure or, you know, open water or fast water, stuff like that. You know, just just try different stuff and just learn from any part of that experience. You know? Yeah, I like your take on it because I've always uh, told people, you know, that kind of, you know, a guided trip is an, is an expensive thing for most people. Oh, yeah. You know, 500 bucks a day. I don't is, know what you guys charge, but that seems to be like, that plus or minus a hundred dollars, you know, it's pretty is, average. It's pretty average for, for a guided yep. trip, and you can't control the fishing, you can't control the weather. You know, there's a lot of things out of control, but you have a guide in your boat for eight hours, and just think about it as like you're taking a college class. Exactly. Ask questions, learn, soak up that information. Then when you go out, you're going to be, you know, so much better. Right. And to get a different perspective too, because I like fishing with a lot of different guys. Because yep. you have something different to offer than right. Ryan. Everybody fishes has different. something. Oh, I've learned something different from every guide I've gone out with. Yep. Yeah, I don't care yep. who you are, how long you've been fishing, you're going to learn something. Yep. So Nate, if uh, people want to book a trip with you, what's uh, the best way to do it? Uh, you can contact me directly on Instagram. It's a uh, Nate Wilson FTW, or you can contact Ryan through Go Outside Expeditions. Is there a website there? We have a website. I believe it's Go Outside Expedition Co. Like co dot com. Okay. Or you know, just hit us up on Instagram. And I know there's a uh, Go Outside Expeditions Instagram page as well. Right. Correct. Yeah. You can get a hold of any of us on there you want to go specifically with me just you know unless you contact me directly just tell ryan you want to fish with me if not it just kind of goes into whoever's got into the shuffle exactly yeah 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 and uh ryan's a great dude too so right. if you go let's go with ryan i mean we're a small company man there's three of us you're not going to get a bad guide yeah. between the three of us for sure everybody's got you know multiple years experience of doing this and everybody loves fishing and you know you're not going to have a bad time for sure one more question. Uh, what's your most memorable fish that you've caught on the fly? Um, man, <laughs> most memorable fish, I mean, would probably be uh, we went fishing a few days after my dad passed away um, in his old boat with a friend of his that has it now. And uh, it was just one of those deals, you know, it was January, mid, late January, 
it was cold, probably in mid thirties. You know, we just went out to go fish just to kind of everyone clear their head dealing with my dad passing. And, uh, we were back fishing, uh, the backside of St. Joe's just out, uh, outside of Rockport and we're cruising a shoreline and look over and we just see this school of redfish that was probably 50 yards wide and oh gosh that's got to be yeah pulled a the couple boat. hundred fish oh it was insane we pulled yeah. the boat up when there's five of us in the boat we hop out and uh i brought one of my dad's old bait casters with me with like one of his favorite uh top waters on it and i'm it was every cast you were c- catching a fish um we had multiple quad hookups that day um i caught three fish real quick on that top water walked back to the boat and grabbed my fly rod and i think probably released another 15 or 20 redfish that Man, day. what a great day. Yeah, yeah. it was phenomenal. That's it awesome. Was really, really cool. That's a really cool story. I've never asked this before, but do you have any questions for us? Uh, not really. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Swing and a miss. <laughs> <laughs> What's your most memorable fish, Landon? Oh, gosh. Um, I would have to say uh, tarpon. I caught, I've caught a couple tarpon, but I really learned how to not catch tarpon to catch a tarpon. Yeah. Um, I had jumped a lot of fish before I caught my first one. And so there was this like kind of like internal battle of like frustration of like, and I did everything wrong that you could do. Like I trout set on fish, you know, I wasn't fighting fish correctly. So I basically had to like every fish I lost was like a lesson. And I was just like, extremely frustrated with myself and then i went back the next year and fished for tarpon and i went with a ton of confidence and i landed my first one you know i was just like you know i just went in like with a good mentality of like you know i i know what to do i know how to do this i can get the job done right like stood on the bow of the boat with confidence and just caught a tarpon yeah then caught another one and then maybe like one or two got off and then i caught another one it was just like Super fun of like overcoming that, like jumping twenty fish probably. Yeah, not getting your hands and on one. Not getting my hands on one. Just like every rookie mistake, and I was a, I I was a you know man fishing manager of fly shop and like had caught a ton of different fish and so like you know it was you know it was just a battle you know what I mean just like an yeah. internal like frustration um, and so that is why just like overcoming that. I've also caught like uh, cutthroat that were super memorable. Um, I yeah. caught a steelhead, but it was totally different experience. And that was a really cool fish because, you know, like steelhead fish of a thousand casts, you know what I mean? Like we were fishing uh, in Washington. There's not a lot of fish. I caught one like on my third cast. So it was like totally different, but fun, <laughs> you know, for that reason. Yeah. Because I was like, I kind of went into it with like, that was after the tarpon debacle. And I was like, you know what? Just gonna go out here. I'm in Washington. I have one day on the water. I'm gonna enjoy the scenery. You know, there's gonna be some uh, sea run cutthroat. Probably gonna catch a couple of those. You know, it still has a bonus, like 100 feet from the boat ramp. You know, catch. Yeah. So that was really cool. Awesome. Um, Zach, what about you? I think we've talked about this before, but it's been a long about. time. I don't know. I was thinking about it. Probably the first trout ever caught by myself without a guide. Because like, I don't know. I love the trout fish. That's like what got me into fly fishing in general yeah. was, you know. And that was a trout fishing, trout, right? Well, trout fishing in the Smokies for Brookies was like, with a guide, what first got me. But uh, a brown trout on the car, on the 
on Boulder Creek was my first trout I ever caught by myself without a guide. Just like I had been working so hard. Like it was my third day fishing. We took a guide like the first day. Second day, I had a couple of like bites, but I could never get it. And then that third day, something just clicked and I caught my first brown like in this little eddy. And it was just like everything. I caught like five more <laughs> fish that day. It was great. And I was just like so proud of that. Like little, it wasn't a huge fish, you know, yeah. it was probably, you know, 10 inches or so, but it was just like. Man, I was so proud of that brown trout that I was like, oh, man, I, I knew where that trout was. I had a perfect cast, and it just, like, it happened the way it was supposed to. Evan, you know? what about you? A uh, similar story. Uh, my buddy Nate took me to the coast, and I caught a red fi- Oh, no, that didn't happen. No, actually, it's two fish uh, on the fly. My very first one, because uh, I never caught anything on the fly. I just got into it, uh, and I caught a little uh, a little bass on a popper. Uh, and then when that happened, I was like, oh, this is, this is going to keep happening. Yeah. This is what I'm going to do now. And I had a buddy that actually tried to get me into fly fishing years and years and years before. And I was like, dude, that's dumb. <laughs> I saw that movie. Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> Staying there all freaking day. You know, <laughs> to go back to that question you asked, but you asked about something clients could do. There it is. Don't watch a river run <laughs> and then yep. show up thinking you're going to shadow cast because you can just throw all of that out the window. Yeah, I didn't want to cast all day. But uh, I actually went up to South Dakota, hiked in, um, uh, did a couple day deal, and um, caught a brown on the on the fly in the very first trout I ever caught. And when I caught, I mean, I was, dude, I was just like shaking, yeah. you know. And, yeah. Uh, it was like buck fever, but with a you know a little ten inch trout. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. how is that possible? And, and it just, I don't know. For me, it was kind of like this dumb, but still kind of just, um, I don't know what the word is, but it just felt good, you know. Yeah. It's like, like I'm an gonna, endorphin I'm gonna, rush. Yeah, it was an endorphin rush. But it, but hiking up in the mountains, going catching this wild, you know, non native trout, and <laughs> and then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then keep doing it. You know what I mean? And yeah. trout is so much different than bass. I oh, mean, yeah. I grew up a conventional rod fisher. I had a bass boat, the whole deal. You know, setting a hook with a with a bait caster on a big crankbait's way different than a fly yeah. and, and a trout, or even a bass for that matter. But, uh, yeah, those two, those two. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing about all of our stories is, like, most memorable fish isn't always our biggest fish. It's usually the, ex- like, Nate's story is the experience around his fish. Zach's story, Evan's story, my story. You know, I had to be humbled, but it's the experience around, right. you know, the fish and not the fish itself. So back to what Nate was saying uh, before you book a trip with him, just go out there and expect to just, like, enjoy being outside. Have a good hey, – yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And maybe you'll catch your first new species or you'll catch your first fish or, you know – you'll get that popper right under the tree and not hook the branch yeah. <laughs> for the 20th time. Hey, man, but if you're not snagging branches and cypress roots, you're not yeah. casting to the right spot. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, yeah. that's just part of the game. No, that's for sure. If you're not losing flies, you're not catching fish. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You can play it cautious and keep outside of that weed line, but you're not going to get anything. Yeah. Hey, uh, Evan, when's this podcast going to come out? Uh, this one comes out, I believe, December 14th. I think sounds right. Just in time for a last minute Christmas gift. Uh, if you guys have waited till the last minute to your Christmas shopping, uh, you guys can book a trip for a family member with uh, Nate and go outside expeditions. Or if you guys need a great stocking stuffer, we have uh, fantastic awesome, enamel mugs, fantastic and enamel mugs and stickers, and uh, great uh, stocking stuffers. And I think we only have like one or two copies of uh Steve Ramirez book left. Yep. 
Um, they're signed, uh, and we also have Kevin's book and fly tying kits and, and all you kinds can of great stuff. Pre-order Steve's new book as well. You can also pre-order Steve's second book. Yep. Yep. So uh, do your last minute Christmas shopping with uh, with us. Honey Hole Angling or with uh, Nate and go outside expeditions. All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all. And Nate, thank you for coming on the podcast. This yeah, was awesome. Was I had a ton of fun. Me too. Me and too. We will uh, see you guys out on the water. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>